All the latest business news from WA. Mark my words, your weekly news briefing with Mark Pownell and Mark Beyer. Welcome to our weekly podcast. I'm Mark Pownell and I'm joined by Mark Beyer. Coming up in this podcast, mining cost pressures, house prices, Auditor-General, Micromine Sale, Tease and Macca and Borby Webster steps down. But first up, Mark, uh, can you put your economist hat on and analyse the economic outlook? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, well, look, we had a couple of big developments this week, uh, which give people a, a nice overall feel of where the economy is heading. Uh, we had the quarterly inflation data, and then we had Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers giving a, a very broad economic update. Uh, firstly, the inflation numbers, uh, well, we've got rising and high inflation. Um, at a national level, the inflation rate 6.1%. Western Australia leading the country, not (laughs) something we want to be leading on, Uh, 7.4% annual inflation rate. Um, That was a bit softer than they actually expected, wasn't it? It was a bit softer. Um, And in fact, the figure for Western Australia was down slightly as well from the previous quarter. Nonetheless, I guess it's just this um, very sudden change, really, Mm. in the overall sort of economic context that we've got. Um, Now, the general view is this will be a temporary phenomenon. Um, There's sort of a a quite heated economy, um, you know, strong growth, labour shortages, things we've been talking about for a long time, plus these global factors like higher energy costs, um, higher food and fertiliser costs off the back of what's happening, happening in Ukraine and so on. All of that fed into Jim Chalmers' presentation during the week. He talked about the national inflation rate peaking at 7.75%. So we've got a little bit more increase to happen. To put that in context, three months ago, when the pre-election economic update was released, that said inflation would peak at four and a quarter. Mm. So you know, it's almost double what the, uh, the boffins had been expecting just a few months ago. In tandem with that, Economic growth, both in Australia and globally, is now expected to be lower. Um, So Federal Treasury has cut its growth forecasts for the the, the global economy, um, as have a lot of other groups like the IMF. Now, we're not falling into a deep hole here. Uh, We're going from something like three and three quarters down to three and a bit. So still reasonable growth over the next few years. Yeah, GDP growth you're talking about. GDP at a global level. Yeah. In the Australian economy, the view is that growth will taper off from here. In the year 2023-24, down to about 2%. So that's a pretty soft number. Um, And once again, down about half percent from what people had been talking about previously. So high inflation, that will contribute to um, or prompt more increases in interest rates which, of course, is one of the reasons why growth is going to slow. In fact, that's what the Reserve Bank wants. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I'm going to ask you an economics question here that has just troubled me. I understand using interest rates to curb inflation when prices are simply going up because of demand, right? I understand that. But in this case, prices and costs haven't really gone up because of demand in this economy, have they? They are... They're just input costs that have gone up. Well, I mean, the global demand is pushing up 
fuel prices and the like. But it's not a it's not a local demand setting. The prices went up overnight almost, not on the basis of people using twice as much petrol. So doesn't the doesn't the the rising cost of those inputs into the economy do the job that interest rates would be doing anyway? I'm just curious about that thought. Um, and I don't the, want to be an ignorant person who doesn't get it. It just seems to me a little strange. No, no, I think that's a fair fair question to pose. Um, and I think you're correct in the sense that these you know, higher costs coming from global pressures uh, will have a, um, a slowing effect in terms of they'll, they'll eat into people's spending power mm. and reduce consumption spending, reduce the amount they can spend on their houses. But in tandem with that, there was nonetheless uh, domestically driven inflation. Sure. And I guess for a guide to that, you go back to those pre-election forecasts when they were talking about inflation going up to about four and a quarter percent. Yeah. So a lot less than what we'd been, what we're looking at now. But that sits relative to the Reserve Bank's target band you know they're saying inflation between two and three percent that that's a that's a sustainable longer term target that they want anything above that they get concerned about it and i you know i guess the irony is here that some of that inflation and some of that locally stimulated inflation so i accept that there's some of it is in the housing market and the housing building sector which is overheated because it's been stimulated by the government. Uh, you know, it's just extraordinary uh, in that sense that you've got, you know, the RBA trying to dampen um, demand created by government stimulus. I find yep. that really weird. No, and look, quite clearly with the benefit of hindsight, there was way too much stimulus that came in during COVID. Yep. And when you're dealing with the consequences of that and the... Residential construction industry is the prime example of that issue. Yeah. And look, that leads on to, I suppose, some of the challenges thrown up for government by this situation. Uh, you know, we've got a Labor government that's just come into power in Canberra, you know, looking after the workers. And mm. um, that normally means growth in wages. Um, and yet Jim Chalmers has been telling everyone, well, look, you're going to have to cop a reduction in real wages. Mm. We can't see wages growing as fast as the inflation rate because then we get into that sort of vicious cycle. So, you know, he's suddenly been hit with a reality check. Um, And then the other part of it as well, uh, the budget pressure that Labor is under. You know, they've inherited large national debt uh, from big spending governments in the past. Uh, They wanted to layer on top of that lots of promises. Um, That's going to get harder to deliver. So... um, a newly elected government's been through a nice little honeymoon for a while now, yeah, yeah. but rapidly coming to an end. And even locally, the, the that pressure on you know trying to deliver things like MetroNet, which was a you know an election promise from the previous election, it's hard work, isn't it? When costs are going through the roof, and I hear you know more and more that that's a that's a big issue. Um, now, Mark. Just continuing on that theme, um, but bringing it maybe down to a more micro level, several mining companies have provided updates or results which document the rise in cost of doing business in that sector. Yeah, look, over the past week, we've had quarterly updates from a whole range of um, mainly iron ore, gold, lithium miners, uh, which give us a really good insight into what's going on you know, on the ground. Two broad themes that stand out. Uh, one is the fact that the miners have met their 
broadly met their production targets, um, despite some very challenging operating conditions, um, and in particular, sharply increasing costs, um, more so than consumer inflation. Mm -hmm. Fortescue Metals Group was a neat little example to start with. Um, Now, they were a rare example where they actually exceeded their production guidance for the past financial year. So, what, 190-odd million tonnes of iron ore, Mm -hmm. third year in a row, they've exceeded their uh, production target, um, and they're forecasting um, a little bit more growth in the current financial year. So that was a big tick, uh, despite all these labour supply issues and so on. On the cost side, uh, they're forecasting a 16% increase in their uh, C1 sort of cash costs from their iron ore mining operations. Right. So that's you know, double the consumer inflation figure. Uh, big in, in uh, big impacts there from diesel costs. Yeah, of course. You know, some people are talking about diesel cost there is up about 50%. Well, I think, Mark, just you know, at the Bowser, diesel is actually much higher now than unleaded. You know, it's it's a lot higher. Uh, look, certainly um, that's a big factor. Um, Labor costs going up, um, things like ammonium nitrate, uh, just sort of tied into that sort of fertilizer ammonia market. Um, but look across the board, uh, Rio Tinto was a similar story. They put out their latest quarterly figures. Once again, they're forecasting a similar increase in costs in the current financial year. Um, also talked about yeah, diesel costs, broad inflationary pressures. And then another theme that a lot of mining companies talked about is the increased level of unplanned absences due to COVID. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and for listeners who haven't heard my voice for a couple of weeks, I've been like many other people. I was isolating at home with COVID. Yeah. Um, it wasn't too bad. Glad to have you back, Mark. <laughs> um, but this scenario where, you know, it, as a health issue, it wasn't too bad, but it means you're isolating. Yeah. And, and you know, workforces around the country are going through that. Uh, one of the other little notes that Rio and a few other miners talked about is action taken to secure uh, critical skills, in, including things like uh, maintenance crews. Um, so your, your normal sort of operational staff, they seem to be reasonably good there. But when there's a shutdown or a maintenance issue and you need to get some key people in, that seems to be a real pressure point. Yep. Uh, Pilbara Minerals, the lithium miner, also spoke about that. And, of course, the way you deal with that is that you offer the contractors a higher rate. <laughs> no one's actually saying that, but we know that's the reality of it. Yeah, so right. that feeds through to costs. Um, and, look, the other thing that the other trend that came through, particularly from the gold miners, had companies like Romelius, uh, Silver Lake, Regis... In pretty much all of these cases, their latest cost figures were all at or just above the top end of their guidance. So they'd they'd sort of factored in the expectation of higher costs. But then they'd actually got it. And they actually, well, the top end of the cost guidance, which is where you don't want to be. Um, But that just shows the pressure that they're all under. This is, you know, across the board. Mm, Okay. No, well, plenty to look for there, and it, uh, that's a really interesting indicator. And I guess that's the the fearful concept that if that could keep spilling into the the domestic 
economy in some way. Well, look, just the last example I'll mention here, uh, Oz Minerals also put out their quarterly, and their commentary got to the issue of what this means for future projects. Uh, they've got their, well, they've got quite a few big projects either underway or planned. One of them is the West Musgrave uh, project. Uh, it's sort of out, out in the desert, sort of near the WASA border, uh, but a big copper project. Now, they're saying that they're continuing to assess the impact of both cost inflation and that broader operating environment on both the cost of that project and the schedule. So that's a pretty clear signal of, look, this project might get deferred. Yeah, okay. Because it's just too difficult and too expensive at the moment. Okay, cheers. And Mark, uh, well, I guess continuing on with that kind of economic side of things, house prices in Perth look fairly firm compared to the national market. There was a really interesting report from REA Group. Uh, they sort of you know, a property information group operates nationally. They've put out their prop track uh, property market outlook. They're forecasting substantial falls in house prices in most cities around the country. Perth is the exception. Mm. Uh, so Perth is, well, I wouldn't say the strongest, um, the least the weakest. Least weak. <laughs> so for context here, you know, at a national level over the past two years, house prices have gone up about 34%. Yeah. And it's places like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane that have driven that increase. They're now forecasting a substantial correction. They're saying over the next two years, prices in those cities will go down by about 15%. Yeah, and as much as my ignorance around inflation and interest rates, there's the reason why you need interest rates to rise, right? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Although that could have happened quite a lot earlier. <laughs> uh, Perth, by contrast, now we didn't have anywhere near that level of growth in house prices. Uh, you know, despite people might keep, keep on reading about this house price boom in Perth um, in various other media, mm. you know, it's never been a boom. It's been solid growth. Yeah. And REA is saying that in keeping with that, uh, Perth, they see another uh, growth of about 2 to 5% um, in the current year and then basically flatlining in the year after that. Yeah, it might go up a tiny bit, might go down a tiny bit, yeah. but basically flat. And compared to the falls in every other city, that's a significant difference. Mm. Uh, now, that growth they're forecasting there, uh, groups like or REWA in particular, they're talking about a 10% growth in the current year. So it's not as strong as REWA is talking about. Uh, nonetheless, uh, a continuation of a good, solid outcome for the residential property market in Western Australia. Yeah. Well, look, Mark, I've just... As it happens, I've been talking to quite a few people in that property sector over the last week or so, um, you know, land developers, etc. All of them, you know, say that it's a little bit tougher and yet all of them ve remain very confident of Perth uh, in terms of, you know, there's, there's just not enough land. <laughs> there isn't the available land. And the only thing really keeping prices suppressed to any great extent here, is that we don't have any immigration at the moment. There's no one coming from over east and there still isn't that wave of immigration that we were maybe hoping for from overseas to start to fill the backlog of labour vacancies. Um, so the, that's really the only thing that's keeping a lid on prices because if we suddenly had, you know, 50,000 people wanting to come here, that would change things. 
Now, again, the view is that we might not get the 50,000 people we need because the rest of the world needs them just as much as we do. So it's a kind of fascinating change from the boom times before the GFC and after, and particularly after when we were a unique market that still had growth and the, and overseas people came here because there were no opportunities in their own markets. Um, we'll wait and see, but it was it's it's a quite of it's an interesting change that seems you know it was a fairly common thread in what what in the people I've been speaking to. Well, look, that leaks back to one of the big challenges facing uh, the federal government in particular um, and the state government to a lesser degree, and there's this increasingly clear consensus from the business community that the one lever that government can pull is to make immigration easier, yeah. to reform the visa system and, and even simply just the processing of visas and make that happen more efficiently and get more workers into the country to help deal with these shortages that we're, we're grappling with. Um, but once again, as you say, it requires people in other countries to, have to, to want to and have a sufficient incentive yeah. to move. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, we have a Labor government in power now. Uh, you know, they're, you know, heavily influenced by the union movement that are less inclined towards immigration to solve Labor problems. They prefer to see wages go up. <laughs> Um, now, Mark, uh, Gary Adshead broke, uh, broke news that the state's Auditor-General has launched an investigation into major government asset sales. Yeah, Gary caught up with Caroline Spencer last week, and for those people who've seen the latest uh, edition of the Business News magazine, Gary's got a very in-depth article there uh, analysing uh, commercial transactions by the state government. And as part of his investigation into that, he sat down with the Auditor General and, yeah, she came out and said that her team are kicking off a 12-month inquiry into government asset sales and land sales in particular. For the past 10 years, right? So That's right. Yeah, so not just this current term or the previous term of the current government, but going back beyond that. Correct, yep. Uh, but the fact that she's sort of penciled in a year for the inquiry signals the level of depth that they're planning to look at, mm. um, including the potential use of insider information um, and the role that public servants might have played. Um, you know, one case that's obviously will come to light through the courts is Paul White, used to be a senior bureaucrat in Department of Communities and before that the Housing Authority. Yeah. Um, you know, what, 20-odd million dollars? Yeah, ripped, ripped the government yeah. off. Yep. Ripped we taxpayers off, $20 million. Um, so, look, And, and she's going to look and see whether other people are involved, how those, how that, how he got away with that. or That's right. Or how he got away with it for a while. Yes. Um, also looking at... Um, she's also, I, I guess, expressed a level of concern about the culture of the public service. Um and she's concerned that you might have junior or mid-level public servants, well, indeed any public servants, who see their role as running a defence for government, mm. to use her words. She's saying that's entirely inappropriate. You know, you're not there to defend the government of the day or indeed to defend your colleagues. You know, you're there to speak up and ensure that the right thing is done. 
Um, but also, you know, the, the Paul White is the extreme example where it was blatant criminality. Yes. Uh, the other broader element around this, which Gary's explored in his feature, is commercial transactions by government. And there's a few examples that he's discussed in detail there. Uh, one of them was the uh, change of ownership of the uh, Landgate building out at Midland. Absolutely, that's uh, right. Yep. Which was um, taken over by Giorgio Group. Um, they've purchased the building, done a refurbishment, leased it back to government. Uh, I won't quote all the numbers, but you know some of the numbers in there make people ask the question, is this value for money mm. for the taxpayers? Because yep. at first level, it doesn't appear to be. No. Um, and then other ones that Gary's discussed in, in some detail, uh, the East Perth Power Station. Uh, there was an announcement a couple of years ago that um, Andrew Forrest's private company, Tatarang, and Kerry Stokes' private company, Australian Capital Equity, had been chosen as preferred proponents to redevelop that site. Um, so, of course, there's the historic power station building on the river in East Perth, but there's also a very large uh, parcel of land a prime site for inner-city apartment development. Uh, but also, uh, the government has a substantial cost to get some power infrastructure out of that site so mm. it's ready for the developers. Now, once again, the, the, the concern we have is lack of transparency. Now, you know, a final deal still hasn't been done there, but we don't know what the government's plans are. And so, with all these things just keen to know what's the plan. Yeah. And then the other example, South Fremantle Power Station. Uh, now, the government has said there's a preferred proponent to acquire that asset. Uh, the talk is that it's, once again, Kerry Stokes' company, Australian Capital Equity, uh, but that's not confirmed. Um, Synergy, the government business, is in negotiations with that preferred proponent. Uh, we'd love to see some details and get a bit more transparency around it. Yeah. So it's, it's a good analysis from Gary about this, that the challenges of government doing commercial transactions, um, and particularly when they are unable or choose not to disclose details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, as they say, uh, sunlight is the best antiseptic, I think is the expression. Uh, so just getting, you know, just being more open and transparent, which literally every government before they form, before they come into government, every political party says we're going to be more open and accountable. Um, and uh, I think, I think if I remember rightly, the Landgate transaction was a market-led proposal. So it never went to tender, and that's where, in some ways, this, you know, that, that market-led proposal uh, idea came in a few years ago, brought in by the state government, you know, in... Com comparable to other states and yet it's been it's i don't know it's been a very fraught kind of system that doesn't seem to have worked very well from what i can tell look conceptually it's a great idea you know if there's a, a, a business out there that says hey we've got a great idea for instance you know there might be a an unutilized parcel of land mm. and someone comes to government and says we've got an idea for developing this site you know, not the sort of thing you go out to tender for but you could respond to that particular proposal. Uh, and the ministers keep on assuring us, well, we're hands-off, it's all run by the public service, but of course they get guidance from their ministerial overseers mm. in terms of how to approach these things. 
yeah, it's challenging. Yeah, and I agree, it is a challenge. Look, a uh, very different bit of news, Mark. Uh, you wrote this week about the sale of Micromine for a cool $900 million for a WA software company. What a great story. Yeah. Uh, Graham Tudor, he's a Perth geologist. 36 years ago, he set up Micromine. Um, they've been operating from Netherlands. Uh, I think they're still based in Netherlands. Um, and become a global success story. Uh now being bought by a US company called Aspen Technology, uh, which is listed on the NASDAQ exchange. Uh, and yeah, $900 million in cash. So best as I can tell, that sets a new record for any sort of technology company out of Western Australia Yeah. Um, in terms of the value that's being created there. Well, you know, because Canva kind of left, didn't it, before it really got big? Well, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, we like to think of them as, well, there's a strong Perth connection there with the founders, but yep. it's not a Perth company. Uh, so, look, uh, Micromine, they've got about 300 staff around the world. Uh, their software is used by about 800 companies mm. in about 2,000 sites around the world. So it's everything from um, your exploration um, work right through to mine planning and mine development. So they've got software packages that deal with all of those phases of a project. Yep. Um, and clearly it's been very successful. Uh, now, 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 $900 million doesn't go to the founders, I take it. Uh, well, no, because there was four years ago a Sydney group, Potentia Capital, came in and bought a majority shareholding in the business. Um, since then, they've gone out and bought a couple of other businesses, um, including another WA mining software business, Alastri. Um, and I'm told that since Potentia bought in, the business overall has enjoyed some very good growth. Uh, but certainly the Tudor family was still in there as a minority shareholder. Mm -hmm. um, and Graham and his daughter Claire had been on the board, uh, well, in fact, still will be until the deal closes. Uh, so whatever percentage they get of $900 billion, it's going to be a very nice payday. Yep. for their success in building up that business. And we're not having a stab at how much of it they own currently? Well, I think when Potentia first bought in, they bought about 70%. Yep. Uh, now, I believe they've been, that the, the Tudor family has been diluted since then, um, but I'm not sure exactly what uh, the level is. I mean, I don't, so, uh, certainly I've been told that Potentia is by far the biggest shareholder. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, Nevertheless, a decent you know, what, if it was. 10% of $900 million. Yeah, that'd still be a reasonable amount of money. Plus whatever potential paid to get in in the first place, uh, presumably that went to the tutors. So, That's right. You know, there's a new family office out there uh, with some money to uh, invest. Now, I'll just talk about also a broader issue here. We've had lots of tech success stories in Western Australia, even in that mining software place, companies like MyPlan, MineTech... Serpac, Fractal Technologies, all being sold yep. to bigger players interstate or overseas. And then in other areas, you know, companies like AgWorld, um, Sector Software, ClickSend, all successful technologies developed in Perth, but none of them have gone global yep. under their original ownership from their Perth base. That's a real shame that we haven't seen that development here. Yeah, I... I I hear you, and and in some ways, uh, the fact that each of those ones, particularly in the sector like mining, are being picked off one by one, rather than someone being the consolidator here, 
or any, you know, large industrial company here wanting to get into, you know, what is, these aren't, these are no longer speculative startups. They're subscription-based businesses that are doing really well. It's intriguing that the the bigger business in Western Australia isn't interested in that. Um, it's a, it is a shame, and you could see that as a mining hub, there's no reason why we couldn't be a mining technology hub, uh, where the where some larger group were to you know be run from here. But anyway, we you know we still hope that at some stage we'll get that back and you know the money that gets made does get reinvested here and I think one of the big pluses is people who make money from technology are more likely to invest in technology startups here whereas one of the difficulties with venture capital in this state has been that mining money where the main money has been made in WA and property money tend to go back into those fields, mining and property, rather than into anything as difficult to understand in many cases as technology. Uh, and that is changing, but, you know, it's, a, it's you know, the, the evolution is not yet, it's not a fully evolved sector, I think would be the way to put it. Well, and I should mention the one great, well, a great WA success story in that tech space is VGW. Yes. Um, who you've written about, uh, you know, their founder, Lawrence Escalante, setting up a family office, yeah, looking know. to reinvest some of his wealth. So it'd be great if people like him were to be a, a supporter of the tech sector. And, you know, back to you, Mark, you wrote about Escalante and his interest investing in that uh, we money. That's right, we money, yep. Yeah, a local startup in a fintech. So, you know, it is happening and that is exciting. Uh, and if we can get something that builds into being a a kind of hub kind of owner that feels confident that this is it, then you might have the ability to go global from a local perspective. Um, now, another big deal uh, in the making, I guess, is TEIS. Uh, they've put a $350 million bid for WA mining contractor Macca. Yeah, look, um, this is the, you know, the biggest sort of M&A deal we've seen for a little while here in Western Australia. Uh, Macca on our business news database is the largest mining contractor in the state, hmm. uh, whereas at a national level, uh, that's a, a title held by TEIS. Uh, they're very strong in coal, uh, particularly in Queensland and Indonesia, uh, but now looking to diversify. Um, now, TEIS used to be wholly owned by Simic Group, which in turn used to be on the ASX, mm-hmm. um, you know, the old Leighton Holdings, um, now, sort of, they're an unlisted business, um, half owned by private equity, uh, keen to expand and keen to get back into Western Australia. Um, I think uh, TEIS just has the one contract in Western Australia at the moment that's for covalent lithium mm-hmm. uh, with their Mount Holland project. Uh, but Macca, um, you know, they've got a, a strong profile both in the mining side and a fairly substantial business in the civil. Uh, contracting side, you know, building roads and bridges and so on. Um, and what what's their strength in mining? Which parts? Uh, well, a bit of a, uh, mostly open cut yeah. um, and a bit of underground mining as well. So are we talking gold here or are we talking mainly? Uh, they're big in gold, uh, some iron ore as well. Because so they had a big expansion when they bought Downer, um, another national group. Um, and so Macca bought Downer's Western Australian business only... Oh, a year and a half ago, okay. um, and they got some of the big gold projects in Western Australia. 
And, uh, and of course, Macca have a profile because they're big in the Ride to Conquer Cancer uh, charity bike ride, just throwing that as an aside. That's right, yep. Um, and notably, Tease talked about the fact that they're going to maintain the Macca brand and Macca's support for community initiatives, and that presumably would be one of them. Yeah, which is the Perkins Institute, I think, is the connection there. That's so. right, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. Uh, anyway, they haven't actually succeeded in that bid, right? Oh, look, the board of Macca has supported the offer. Uh, it's a big premium, I think 42% to the most recent or, you know, the recent share price. So that's a, yep. a nice, attractive premium. Um, and uh, the board of Macca have said, this is a good deal. We think you should go for it. And from the T's perspective, I guess, that's a signal that they've believe there's plenty of strength in the WA mining sector for, for years to come to, you know, uh, all those costs rises notwithstanding. Uh, they obviously see, as many people say, there's not really, uh, there's a lot of, you know, it's a solid, it's a solid five years in, in the making, people seem to think. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's almost, mining contracting is like an annuity business. It doesn't get investors particularly excited, but it's just that year in, year out, if you do your job well, mm. you make nice money. And you contract at the right level so you get that, you know, you don't, it's a bit like building, isn't it? You just don't get the, get it wrong, which can drive you under if costs do go up unexpectedly. Yeah. And also a, a quick mention, some of the corporate advisors involved in this one. Yeah. Uh, Macca was advised by Salient Corporate, which is led by Gray Edgerton Warburton. Got it. Uh, Gray used to be uh, one of the top guys at Hartley's. Uh, and was a 40 under 40 winner some years ago. Mm. Kept a pretty low profile, but this is, I think, the biggest sort of public market transaction that Salient has advised on. And then on the other side of the deal, Teese was advised by, uh, among others, uh, Ben Lyle at Lyle Group. Mm. Um, he used to run the local office for Lazard. Yeah. Um, he's gone out and got a, his own small corporate advisory operation. So, you know, a couple of uh, prominent names that we don't see in the public eye a great deal involved in this transaction. Yeah, interesting. Thanks. And now finally, Mark, uh, Bobby Webster, one of our 40 Under 40 winners, she stepped down as the head of the Perth Symphony Orchestra, and that's a private orchestra that she founded. Yeah, look, I think this is worth talking about because how many people start up a brand new arts business, let alone an orchestra, Mm. and run it successfully for, I think, about 12 years, and make money. Mm. And Warby Webster has done that. Um, and I think it's a wonderful achievement. Uh, you know, we, we all think of WA Symphony Orchestra, um, you know, the, the, the big operator uh, that gets a lot of support from government, um, as most of those big established arts companies do. Yeah. Borby the, came along... The classical arts company, if I can bastardise that word. <laughs> That's right. Um Borby's goal was to to do a few things. Uh, one, there's lots of musicians out there who don't have a, a full-time job with the WA Symphony Orchestra but still love to perform. And Perth Symphony Orchestra provides an opportunity for them to perform and to earn some money. Uh, it's also about taking classical music and orchestras to a wider audience and, and doing different things. Um, as they say in their promo from Mozart to Metallica and Bjork to Beethoven. Hmm. So it's contemporary and classical music, and often in different settings, you know, not in the stuffy old concert hall, but you know, out in public parks, down in Rockingham, 
out in country towns. Uh, last year they performed in front of 108,000 people. So I guess yeah. it's bringing a really innovative business model to running an orchestra. Yeah. And that, that's a great seeing, story. Seeing a gap in the market and niche. And I might just, you know, rather than saying the stuffy old concert hall, I think what we mean is the rarefied air of the concert hall which I think, you know, we all enjoy that. Yeah, that was probably a little harsh, my turn of phrase there. <laughs> Fair point. But, uh, yeah, like it's more that it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's for the masses or for the people, a little more than, than, than the regular, than the classical version. And I think another point too, last time I checked, uh, looked at the financials for Perth Symphony Orchestra, only about 5% of their income comes from government. So, you know, it's all come from the punters buying tickets yep. and from their you know, philanthropic and, and corporate supporters. Got it. And, and look, just as a final note, they've got quite a decent board there, haven't they? Uh, Phil Thick is chair of the board. Yep. Um, and then, of course, Catherine Henwood joined, I think, last year, uh, formerly of WA Ballet. Um, so she'll be, um, you know, there to give some continuity to the running of Perth Symphony. Brilliant. All right. Great story. Um Well, thanks, Mark. Appreciate your time. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.